Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, When the Fairest Cut is the Deepest, The Risk of Renunciation, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, September the 9th, 2007. In class one day at Moscow State University, Irina described meeting an American missionary on the subway. The missionary, she said, had advised her that to become a Christian, all she needed to do was to acknowledge four simple propositions in a little booklet, then say a short prayer. It was that easy. Would she like to pray and become a Christian right then and there? Reflecting upon her encounter later that day in my class, she said something that I still remember 15 years later. You Americans make being a Christian sound so simple and easy. For us Russians, it's more difficult. I think Irina knew Jesus better than the missionary. She knew that instead of emphasizing how easy it is to follow him, Jesus warns us to consider how hard are the difficulties we comfort ourselves with the hope of heavenly rewards, but he reminds us of the earthly risks. He tells those who overestimate the benefits and blessings not to underestimate the costs and constraints. In perhaps the most uncompromising declaration that he ever made, in this week's gospel, Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, verses 27 and 33, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. I don't think Jesus means that we should treat our families with antipathy or aversion. Family, like many other aspects of life, is not only a legitimate concern, but often the source of great love and joy. Rather, as he often does, Jesus uses hyperbole to hammer home a most literal truth, that authentic discipleship demands intentional renunciation. Jesus calls us to absolute and unconditional allegiance in a way that relativizes every other legitimate claim, including, as I will argue, not only our love of family, but also our love of nation and our love of money. Self-denial and renunciation as necessary conditions of discipleship are prominent themes in the Gospel of Luke. In the parable right before this hard saying, Jesus compared God's kingdom to a great banquet. But when guests receive their invitations, we read in Luke 14:18 that, quote, they all alike began to make excuses, end quote, about wealth, about work, and about family. The excuses preventing them from attending the banquet. Well, at least they were honest. Then again, when an overzealous follower insisted that he would follow Jesus wherever he went, 
Jesus as much as told him that he had no idea what he was promising, for he himself was a homeless wanderer. He discouraged another disciple from attending his father's funeral, and he even a request for final farewells earned a rebuke in Luke chapter 9, 57 to 62. In contrast, the disciples who failed so badly in so many ways could at least tell Jesus with a straight face, Lord, we have left all we had to follow you. Luke 18:28. When Jesus called Andrew, Peter, James, and John, Luke emphasizes their categorical and immediate break with the past, with the family business. We read in Luke 5:11, they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. And when Jesus visited Matthew at his tax collector's office, he said to him, follow me. At which point Luke writes, Matthew got up, left everything, and followed him. Luke 5.28 We read in Luke 14.25 that large crowds traveled with Jesus. It's easy to imagine why, given the spectacle he made. Jesus could be irreverent. He ate and drank with the riffraff. He violated accepted ideas about institutional religion, befriended the ritually impure, broke social taboos by honoring women, eating with despised Roman tax collectors, and embracing prostitutes. He mocked the hypocrisy and self-righteousness of the religiously scrupulous, silenced the religious experts, satirized Rome's political power, and proclaimed a new world order characterized by God's bias for the weak and the vulnerable. But Jesus raised rather than lowered the ante for these many casual enthusiasts, the thrill-seekers, the spectators, and the gawkers. Any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. He raised the bar, and in the process he thinned the large crowds. By his own estimate, only a few people would stoop to enter the narrow door and negotiate the narrow road. We shouldn't judge these people too harshly. Everyone has responsibilities and legitimate concerns. The Gospels are realistic in how they describe people who rejected Jesus' invitation to his radically subversive way of life. Many people who heard him teach and who saw him heal considered his call, calculated the personal costs, and refused the invitation. Here are six examples. After a particularly scandalous reading, uh, scandalous teaching, we read in John chapter 6, verse 66, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. In a Samaritan village, we read in Luke 9.53, the people there did not welcome him. After healing a man, we read in Luke 8.37, all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. 
people in his hometown of Nazareth took offense at him, we read in Mark 6, verse 3. And Luke adds that all the people in the synagogue were furious. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. Luke chapter 4, 28 and 29. When Jesus asked a young entrepreneur to renounce his riches, we read in Mark 10, 22, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. And finally, in John chapter 11, verse 53, we, learn, we read how the religious establishment plotted to kill Jesus. Jesus renounced his own family for God's call on his life. In his birth narratives, there's an emergent tension between Jesus' filial identity with God the Father in his willing obedience to his earthly parents. But that obedience eventually gave way to a radical disruption. By the time of his public ministry, his family tried to apprehend him as a deranged crackpot. Mark 3.21, Luke 4.29, and John 7.5. In his first miracle at Cana, Jesus actively distance himself from his own mother, John 2, verse 4. When his mother and brothers tried to speak to him, he rebuffed them and redefined the meaning of family, Matthew 12, 46-50. In fact, some disciples said Jesus would renounce not only family, but even marriage and sex, Matthew 19, verse 12. In the Old Testament reading for this week, Jeremiah renounced the idolatrous myths of nation and state. In his long prophecy, he deconstructed every aspect of society that a citizen might cherish. The government, foreign and domestic policy, religion, the judiciary, business, and the military. The cultural status quo offered soothing words of assurance. We read in Jeremiah 23, verse 17, You will have peace. No harm will come to you. But Jeremiah unmasked what he called reckless lies, 23:32. He offered Yahweh's alternate analysis. In 18, verse 11, we read, I am preparing a disaster for you. For renouncing these national myths, Jeremiah was beaten, threatened with death, imprisoned, thrown down a well, and derided as an unpatriotic crank and traitor. Few people listened to him, I imagine, but in the end, history proved him right. In the epistle for this week, Paul challenged Philemon to renounce the status quo of work and wealth. When he was in prison, Paul had befriended and converted a runaway slave from Colossae named Onesimus. When he sent a letter to the Colossian church, he shocked them by also sending Onesimus back with the courier whose name was Tychicus. He praised Onesimus as, quote, our faithful and dear brother who is one of you, Colossians 4.9. 
to the slave owner Philemon, who also worshipped at that same Colossian church, Paul made a pun on Onesimus's name, which in Greek means useful. True, Onesimus was a runaway slave who ended up in prison, but now in Christ he was Paul's son in quote-unquote very heart. True, says Paul, he used to be useless to Philemon, but as a new convert he was now quote-unquote useful to both Paul and Philemon. Philemon would get Onesimus back, said Paul, but it ought to be quote, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. Philemon, verse 16. In Paul's opinion, Philemon should renounce slavery's socioeconomic status quo. Renouncing family, idolatry of the nation, work, and wealth are indicative of a broader call to multiple conversions in multiple renunciations. Take Peter as an example. When Jesus first called Peter at the Sea of Galilee with the words, Follow me, Mark 1.17, he renounced his life as a fisherman. Three years later, at that same seashore, and after he had denied even knowing him, Jesus again called Peter with the exact same words, Follow me. John 21:19, And so Peter renounced what had to be a horrible stigma of failure. Still later, Peter renounced his ethnocentric bigotry when he realized that God welcomed Gentiles and people of every nation without favoritism. Acts 10 and 11. And finally, Peter renounced his own hypocrisy when Paul confronted him for refusing to eat with Gentiles, Galatians 2, 11-21. And so for us, as well as for Peter, renunciation is a lifelong process in which the goalposts keep moving. You're never finished. Renunciation accentuates the conflicting and competing interests between the call of God's kingdom and the many voices of family, work, wealth, patriotism, bigotry, and even personal failures. The hard saying of Jesus in Luke's Gospel validates Irina's observation that the way of Jesus is complex and difficult, not simple and easy. In an odd sort of way, his strident demand comforts us because it affirms our struggle for vigilance. Renunciation offers the ultimate risk-reward decision, said Jesus. He said in Matthew chapter 10, 39, Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. When we give up all, we gain all. And so I've taken to praying the prayer of St. Augustine. Lord, give what you command, and command what you will. And now for further reflection, consider Paul's renunciation 
of his cherished religious identity in Philippians 3, 7 and 8. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Secondly, see the first chapter of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship, in which he contrasts cheap grace and costly grace. And then finally, what has been your own experience of renunciation? For books this week, I review a book called The Deserter's Tale, the story of an ordinary soldier who walked away from the war in Iraq. It's by a soldier named Joshua Key, and it's co-written as told to Lawrence Hill. New York, Atlantic Monthly Press, 2007, 237 pages. Contrary to the subtitle of this book, Joshua Key is no ordinary soldier. In fact, he did the one thing a soldier must never do, quote, think for myself and question my commanders, end quote. Most bravely of all, he listened to the voice of his own conscience. His memoir illustrates what the chaplain of Yale University, William Sloan Coffin, once warned, that in war, for every boy turned into a man, there are five human beings turned into into an animal. Joshua Key was an army recruiter's dream. He grew up in a two-bedroom trailer in rural Oklahoma with three stepdads who beat his mom. His biggest dream was to become a welder. He describes himself as unabashedly patriotic. So at the age of 24, he walked into a recruiter's office to escape his grinding poverty. He just loved the 17 weeks of boot camp. He loved the weapons, which in his case were part of his everyday life as a kid in Oklahoma. He especially re appreciated the recruiter's assurances that he would be sent to a unit that built bridges and not into a combat zone where he killed people. And so on April 10, 2003, about three weeks after the United States invaded Iraq, Key deployed to Iraq. He was eager to fight terrorism and to defend America. Seven months later, he had horrible nightmares, blackouts from drinking, panic attacks, and flashbacks. He took sleeping pills, ripped light fixtures out of the ceiling, and worst of all, he almost, according to his own description, lost his soul. In his seven months of active duty, Joshua Key conservatively estimates that he participated in 200 house raids. Each successive raid, he writes, quote, chipped away at my soul, end quote. Not one single time did these raids find anyone or anything associated with terrorists. What he and his platoon did do, he said, was pillage, plunder, loot, in at least one instance, rape normal Iraqi civilians, all with impunity.
quote, we knew that we would not have to give an account for our actions, end quote. Key began to realize that his own comrades were terrorizing fellow human beings, not liberating a country, and that, quote, my own moral judgment was disintegrating under the pressure of being a soldier, end quote. Two particular incidences haunt Key even today. On one patrol, his platoon came upon four Iraqis who had been decapitated by American machine guns. Two soldiers just laughed and kicked the heads of the decapitated Iraqis like soccer balls. On another occasion, he witnessed the murder of a 10-year-old Iraqi girl who had befriended Key by begging for food almost every day. After seven months and 200 house raids, Key earned a two-week vacation home. Quote, My mind was fried. I hadn't slept more than an hour or two at a time for more than half a year of war. I had heard so many machine guns and mortars that I often found myself hard of hearing after firefights. I could barely string three clear thoughts together. I knew only two things for sure. My own army had made me ashamed to be American, and I was finally going home to see my wife and children. After hiding in Colorado Springs for two months, Joshua Key fled to Philadelphia where he lived in his car and in fleabag motels. With help from the War Resisters Support Campaign in Toronto, he moved to Canada, where his initial application for refugee status has been denied. Joshua Key and his case is now on appeal. The Deserter's Tale, the story of an ordinary soldier. For films this week, I review a film called Combat Diary, The Marines of Lima Company, from the year 2006. This film, actually a video diary, is by soldiers and about soldiers, specifically the 184 Marines of Lima Company, a reserve unit from Columbus, Ohio. They were deployed to Iraq from February 28, 2005 to September 30, 2005. The film begins with their jaunty send-off and ends with their tearful reunions amongst a flag-waving crowd waiting for them in the rain. No one said we couldn't, remarked one Marine, about filming their war experiences on home video cameras, and so we did. Many of the reservists thought that they might be sidelined to some insignificant duty where they wouldn't screw up the real war, but that was not to be. Lima Company saw a significant battle and lost 23 comrades during their seven-month tour. You see firsthand how and why. The film alternates between their home videos of the war and their commentaries about their experiences once they got home. We also hear several families relive how and when they heard that they had lost a son in Lima Company. This is no Hollywood production, it's home video. And that, along with what learning what life is like for a soldier in real battle, 
are the film's greatest strengths. Combat Diary The Marines of Lima Company And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by George MacDonald. George MacDonald lived from 1824 to 1905. The title of this poem is actually An Evening Prayer. I am a bubble upon thy ever-moving resting sea. O oh, rest me now from tossing trespass trouble. Take me down into thee. Give me thy peace. My heart is aching with unquietness. O oh, make its inharmonious beating cease. Thy hand upon it press. My night, my day, swift night and day betwixt, my world doth reel. Potter, take not thy hand from off thy clay that whirls upon thy wheel. O heart, I cry for love and life, pardon and hope and strength. O Father, I am thine, I shall not die, but I shall sleep at length. An Evening Prayer by George MacDonald Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September 9th, 2007. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.